Um, my sobriety date is July 4th of 2005. Um, <laughs> I, uh, um, my home group is There's a Solution in Cary, North Carolina, um, this little suburb outside of Raleigh. Um, actually, it's a big suburb. Um, and uh, I have I have a sponsor, and I sponsor other people. And um, you know, I was told when I first got here those are the three most important things. So check, check, and check. <laughs> um, I uh, by no means I'm an expert in safety in AA. I um, was asked by a friend who needed someone to um, like do some service work. Uh, she was asked to coordinate a workshop for the state convention. I think it was like on a Friday afternoon in 2015. And um, it was on safety in AA because there was a buzz that was kind of starting about that. And she asked me, and I was so confused. I was like, why is she asking me this? Did something happen? Did I say something? I don't even, it was so out of the blue. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't even know what to talk about. Like, you know, I just assumed naturally it was a couple of things. And then I sat down and I thought about it and thought about it and prayed about it. And I don't know what safety in AA is. And then I started thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know what makes me feel safe in AA, but what makes me feel unsafe in AA? And I, oh, this does have to be closer. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, thank you. So <laughs> I feel like I can't touch this anymore. Um, so that's when I really started coming up with this list. Um, and apparently it went really well. And uh, like we went over our time and nobody left, which was pretty impressive for a Friday afternoon. And um, I kept getting told after how people never talked about that stuff before, never thought about it, but these things had happened in their group and um, et cetera, et cetera. And so we realized it really was an issue. Sorry, it's, it's not okay. on. Oh, there we go. How's All right, that? yes. Okay, so now, oh, Perfect. wow. Sorry, guys. now it's louder. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we... So ever since then, some, somewhere along the line, Jerry got roped in with it, but um, he and I were asked to do a safety panel together, and um, this is probably, I don't even know, at least Seven, our eighth one, eight. seventh or eighth one doing it together. <clears throat> I was joking around, I said he cheated on me one time. <laughs> he got asked to uh, do a safety panel with a couple people, but ours is better, so anyway. <laughs> just saying. All right, so. Um, I'll just launch right into it. Uh, I feel like I, you know, because it's an A talk, I know that you guys don't need my story, but I'll give you like a two minute version if that's possible. So, <laughs> um, I uh, got, I'm from Chicago, the city, Illinois. Um, and uh, I started drinking when I was like 15, 16. Um, my <clears throat> um, parents were separated and divorced when I was real young, so I grew up with like two different households, turned into like two different identities, really helped me drink a lot when I got into my drinking. Um, I could hide it better and do whatever, but um, I bottomed out um, few, several times. I started outpatient treatment, um, I stopped drinking in like, I think that was 2001. Um, I uh, did go to meetings on my own for like a year. I did not have a sponsor. I, I read the book because I had to in treatment. 
Um, then um, I stopped going to meetings because I didn't connect with anything. And that, they were talking about sober, just drinking. So all I heard was them complaining about their drinking. And I stopped going. It was the only thing I could identify with. Um, and eventually I moved to San Diego because I decided Chicago was the problem. And two months after I moved to San Diego, that was about a year and a half into my, um, my dry time. Um, and I moved to San Diego and two months later I started drinking again because obviously Chicago was not the problem. <laughs> it was me. Um, and so then um, I drank for like another year and a half roughly and then I bottomed out again and um, called the number in the yellow pages for AA. <laughs> and somebody answered the phone and a lady picked me up the next day for a meeting and I've been sober since then. Um, I was sober in two, uh, for, I guess for about two years in San Diego and I had gotten in a relationship that brought me to Las Vegas so I moved there for about two years. That relationship ended, I got a job there that eventually moved me to North Carolina that was in 2009. Um, so I've experienced AA in uh, three different parts of the country um, and kind of seen how regionally and I guess you could say culturally things are done a little different. Um, so I, I learned the very painful and hard way that different is not necessarily wrong. <laughs> uh, it's just different. Um, and that is, you know, if people are staying sober, they're doing it the way that they need to do it, and that's okay. Um, even if it's not the way that I think I could stay sober. If it's working for them, then it, it really doesn't have anything to do with me, you know, unless um, it is, I guess, kind of posing a threat to myself or others, and then I would kind of talk to my sponsor and figure out if something needs to change. So that's kind of my own personal background with like where a lot of my experiences are coming from. Um, so when my friend asked me to do this uh, panel at the workshop, I sat down and, you know, again, I asked myself uh, what, um, you know, what makes me feel unsafe in AA. And, you know, the first couple of things that came to mind were physical safety, um, you know, obviously no guns, weapons, anything like that in meetings. Uh, there was a Milano club that I went to a lot when I first moved to North Carolina, and they have a sign on the door that says, don't bring any weapons in here. And I remember the first time I saw that, I went, who would bring a weapon in to an AA meeting? And then I realized that it's full of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, if anybody's going to bring one in here, it'll be us. Um, uh, and then physical also includes threatening behavior. So, you know, sometimes people get a little rowdy joking around and they might get um, uh, physically aggressive, something like that. Or, you know, there could an altercation could pop off. And, um, you know, that's not only physically threatening to others, but it could also, it kind of goes under the mental and emotional, but it, it also might, a lot of us come from a lot of trauma in our lives. Um, and it could end up triggering some kind of like PTSD response in somebody else, you know? So this, I'm just saying like, that's, that's not something we can necessarily control, but it's just something to keep in mind that, you know, I try to remember that AA is a safe place on all levels for every, it should be for everyone. Um, and part of the reason that this is such a, a popular topic is because um, it's really easy to cross those lines without knowing it. And it's just about becoming more self-aware of 
um, my actions and my, my words and the way that I'm sitting or behaving or, you know, this, uh, what is, um, God, what did my sponsor, she was like, uh, restraint of pen, tongue, and she made me add face to that. Because <laughs> my face was offensive sometimes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, there's that. Um, and that's funny. My next point under physical is facial expression can be very offensive, critical, and disrespectful. Uh, and do not forget that the chairperson, the person who's sitting up at the front, they can see everybody. So if you're sitting in the back row and you think nobody can see you, they can. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you, we had our business meeting on Thursday night and I have the privilege uh, and the honor of being, we just formed a steering committee because our group has blown up. Um, and uh, we just, I'm, I'm chair of the steering committee, I'm the first one. And so I get to lead our business meetings, yay. And um, I get to see everybody's reaction during the business meeting and it can be extremely distracting. So. Please, <laughs> try, try to be mindful of your, your chairperson. Um, the second one is, uh, the next obvious one is sexual. Um, and with AA, it's, it's, you know, again, we all come from very kind of, I don't know, not, I shouldn't say all of us, but many of us have come from very um, sort of damaged and uh, painful backgrounds. And, um, you know, I just have to try and remember to keep the relationships here as platonic as possible and know that not everybody comes here healthy, not everybody knows how to behave, and not everybody has gotten to the point where um, they're even aware of themselves or, or how they're used to interacting with people yet, you know? Um, and going back to the, the physical, um, appropriate clothing is, and attire is sometimes a topic, well, oftentimes a topic that we need to talk to newcomers about. Um, but again, that, that goes back to like sponsorship and, and how the group you know, handles that. It, a lot of times it's not a group needs to handle it as an issue, but it's really just a sponsorship kind of, kind of discussion. Um, but just be respectful of people's boundaries. Um, I had a friend when I first got sober who wasn't comfortable hugging anybody, and I'm not a big hugger, um, but you know, there are some people who love hugging everyone, and then there are um, other people who do it in sort of a predatory way, you know? And so I've had to kind of find a middle ground with, okay, you know, it's okay to hug people sometimes, but if there's somebody walking around hugging people just to get like a little, a couple seconds too long, well, a couple, well, a little too tight, a little too intimate, like that's something that I take note of and I kind of watch and I go, is this, just the way they hug, is this something we need to talk about? Or is this like, is this something that they're doing just so they can get physical contact with people in an inappropriate way, you know? And if somebody isn't comfortable being hugged, that's okay, you know? Um, uh, my, my sponsor taught me that if I don't wanna get hugged, I just stick my hand out instead. I will shake your hand, you know? And if somebody does that to me, I don't give them a hard time about it. You know, I just go, oh, okay, and I shake their hand and that's it. Um, I tend to get a little oh, sarcastic and snarky sometimes. I'm working on it. Um, so, you know, I, I like to have cute little comebacks, but it's not always okay to be like that. And, and you know, it could be somebody who's trying really hard to set a boundary that they need. Um, and they don't, they don't need somebody making fun of them for it, you know? So I just need to remember that, even for myself. Um, the... 
the next thing is, um, you know, these, these newcomers that come in, the, the way that sometimes they get preyed on is in an inappropriate way, oftentimes sexual, um, is an, a matter that can be taken care of privately. It doesn't have to be, like I said, at group level. It doesn't have to be public. Um, when I was new, there was a guy who really wanted to give me a ride to all the meetings because I didn't have a car or a license. And um, I had a, this, this lady who was giving me a ride. She, the guy who wanted to give me a ride was like 6'2", and the lady who was giving me a ride was like 4'10". And she ran right up to him, and she said, Madeline will not be riding with you to me. She will be riding with women. And I was like, oh, I'm like, okay. She was super feisty, but it didn't occur to me until later how important that was that she did that for me, because I didn't know any better, you know? Um, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And she was like, no, because <laughs> this guy had a pattern of approaching young newcomer women about and giving them rides. And... And I remember asking her in the car, I said, oh, I don't think it was a problem if he gave me a ride. And she said, do you see him walking up to anybody else besides young women and offering rides, even men? And I was like, oh, no. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and I just, it didn't even click with me, you know, like super naive, just didn't. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, again, um, it's if I've, I've been on the other side of that where I had more sober time and I see a guy approaching a young girl that came into our meeting and I just kind of like go in and start talking to her about something else and redirect her in another direction. I don't have to say, you know, you're not allowed to talk to her because that's not a solution either. That's just going to create more confrontation. There's all sorts of different ways to handle these things that don't escalate a situation or even start something that's not already there. Um, the, next, the next topic was financial safety. Um, I uh, have to remember that um, one of the goals that I want to try to achieve here, especially for newcomers, is the, the kind of principle of being self-supporting. Um, and so I'm not going to, just because somebody's new or they don't have a job, offer to pay for everything for them. You know, I'm going to give them a chance to be independent if they want to, or learn how to say no, or come to, come to dinner and just have coffee, just to be part of the fellowship, you know? Like, other people are allowed to make sacrifices, and I don't have to criticize or get in the way or, you know, try to enable them in some kind of way. Um, so just be, again, mindful of that. Um, and just remember the freedom of not being dependent on others is something that I enjoy, and I get to offer that to other people too. Um, but if somebody does decide to spend money on them, like say you know somebody needs a pack of cigarettes or whatever, I might buy that for them, but I don't expect anything in return. So that's that kind of safety part, is it's a gift always. It's never, oh, now you're indebted to me for some reason or another. You know, I'm not gonna hold it over somebody's head. Um, I, uh, yeah, um, there was a guy who came to our group one time who started laying business cards down on seats <laughs> for his AA counseling business that he started. <laughs> um, and, you know, we just picked up the cards, pulled them aside, and had a little talk with him. <laughs> you know, we didn't have to humiliate him or tell him, that's not allowed here. You know, we just say, look, you know, we're trying to follow the traditions. You know, you with your own business, it's actually an outside topic, outside issue. We're trying to you know, just keep it, we're helping newcomers and we're not making money off of this at all, you know, and this, 
this, it's fine if you want to talk to people on your own, but in our actual meeting, you know, you laying cards on seats looks like that we're supporting that, and we're, we're not. So, and he understood, and he stopped doing it. He, I stopped coming to our meeting, <laughs> but I think because he went to other meetings where they let him do that, or he could get away with it or whatever. But um, the next thing is mental safety. Um, and I have notes here. I, I was telling them, I, every time we do a talk, I add more notes to this, and I update it in my computer, and I save it, and then I go back and I open it for the next talk. And this one, I, I just wrote chapter 7 through 11 in the big book. So the mental safety is already addressed. You know, a lot of these topics, if we follow the steps, the traditions, the principles that we're taught, these are non-issues. You know, all these safety issues um, don't exist. But, <laughs> you know, we come here in all sorts of different shapes, sizes, fashions, backgrounds, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, and you know, there's so much potential to collide with others, even if we don't mean to, just by walking in the door, presenting the way that I do. Um, so it's, it's, you know, something that we all need to kind of learn and grow to do together. Um, but uh, I have tradition three is only the only requirement. Um, and I had to, you know, just remind myself, um, and just for those that are not 100% uh, off book yet, <laughs> I'm just going to read Tradition 3 real quick, if I can get to it. Oh, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. Okay, that's it. Um, there's no regulations or, or specific rules or anything like that um, that, that stops us uh, from letting people into this fellowship. Um, so... Uh, you know, one of the things that I got sober doing, and I didn't mention this in my little two-minute background, but um, is I came, I got to outpatient treatment through a recommendation from a psychiatrist. So, you know, medication is a part of my story in the beginning. Um, but I fully understand that when I talk about that in my story or to a newcomer, to a sponsor or a friend, I'm not telling them that they should get off their medication or go on a certain medication or tweak their medication by themselves at all. Like that's not something that any of us are qualified to do. And even if we are psychiatrists, mental health, substance abuse psychiatrists, that is not what we're doing in an AA meeting, right? We um, actually just talked about um, this tradition. It was either in our group or with Sponsee, I think it was both. Um, about the professionalizing certain things in AA and how we don't, we don't do that at all. Even if you're a qualified AA counselor uh, at work, you're getting paid because you have those qualifications. In AA, those qualifications, it's not that they're null and void, but anybody can do 12-step work in AA. They don't have to be a qualified counselor. You see what I mean? They're getting paid at work for being a qualified counselor. Here, we don't get paid because all we have is our experience kind of thing. Um, so I just have to remember my own experience, no matter what that qualifies to me do me to do professionally outside, that's not who I am in here. Here I'm another alcoholic trying to stay sober. And that's what I'm trying to share with people and that's it. Um, now I do have opinions, experience and things to offer, but I'm not gonna do that from like an AA stance from the podium. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, 
There's that. Um, I have no mind games, manipulations, no guilt trips into working the steps or getting commitments. <laughs> we were joking about being voluntold. Um, <laughs> that's uh, a common thing. And, um, you know, I think things always work out the way that they're supposed to, um, but they don't always have to happen the way, I, I guess, the result uh, works out, but it, it could be smoother getting into it, right? So. Um, pressuring someone into doing a service commitment usually doesn't even work out anyway, you know, because they, they show up the first couple times because they have to, and then they stop showing up because they don't want to, you know, and it's voluntary, so, <laughs> you know, there's no punishment here. Um, I actually have a really cool part from 12 and 12, and I'll read it in a second, but, um, so, you know, the other thing is don't make people feel less than for, um, not being sober for very long or practicing AA differently. Don't humiliate or belittle someone um, because they're not acting the right way or they're practicing their program differently or incorrectly. Um, there's no AA police. Um, it, you know, alcohol is the great equalizer. That's what I like to call it. It, it doesn't matter what color, race, um, you know, cultural background, social, educational, it doesn't matter doesn't matter where on the planet you live, alcohol does not care. Um, alcoholic is an alcoholic. So in AA, sober here, you know, I, I remind myself that that's the same approach that I need to have, um, is I don't, I don't work on people, I work with people, um, because we are all level here. We're all on the same ground. Um, and, you know, just because I have a lot of time does not mean that somebody with 10 days <laughs> can't teach me something. We all know that's true. Uh, so emotional is the next one, just about manipulating um, people, you know, kind of like codependent behaviors. I have a note that says live and learn, um, and there's two books that are really awesome um, that if you want to learn more about that kind of stuff, um, based on AA experience in uh, Pass It On. There's some really good um, stories about Bill Wilson in there, and then in uh, the book Emotional Sobriety. Um, these traditions were not born out of straight-up wisdom. They were born out of mistakes and pain. <laughs> and, you know, our goal is that we don't have to repeat that stuff if we don't want to, but of course that's how our lessons are best learned. So. Um, verbal, uh, verbal safety, I am a huge proponent of not cursing when I'm swearing, or not when I'm sharing or from the podium. Now, I'm working on this too, I'm trying. Uh, when I'm not in, in, those, in that way, uh, presented, presenting in that way, I have a pretty bad mouth. <laughs> but that's, um, you know, that's something that also, you know, it's like I read the situation, I read the room, I read who I'm with, and I know when it's um, okay, and I should say when it's not going to make somebody feel unsafe if I'm excessively cursing, you know, um, or if it's, you know, just not appropriate, like at work, I'm not going to swear nearly as much as I do with my friends, right, so um, I really shouldn't swear at all at work, I'll just put that in there, but um so then there's also when uh, um, somebody is sharing in a meeting about using excessive details about things that make people, other people uncomfortable. <laughs> I look at these. I got told in the car on the way down here. 
Um, I work in the medical field, and I, I have a very, I get very verbally descriptive about some of the things I see there, and some of my friends don't like it. Um, and they just told me in the car, and I gave them permission to shut me down if it gets to that point. <laughs> um, but in, in a meeting, if somebody is going into some kind of drunkalogue and talking about some hugely traumatic experience or a huge fight or something like that, just remember that there are people in the meeting who cannot handle hearing stuff like that. Um, and it's not necessary to go into details like that some, a lot of times, you know, that that share in a general way is something that I think, I think needs to be taken to heart. Um, and then, um, yeah, I already covered that. So spiritual is the next one. Um, and this one covers really everything. Uh, you know, this fourth tradition about the group's autonomy, it's, yes, the group has a right to be autonomous, but I think each AA member also has a right to be autonomous about their beliefs about, um, you know, about their own practices, about the way that they connect with their higher power or don't connect with their higher power. It's not something that uh, I think people, um, I guess anybody has the, the place to say you're doing this wrong, you know, besides not trying at all, you know, that whole I'm not God thing. Um, when I first got to AA, actually for the first four years, I didn't believe in God. And I lied about it <laughs> because I was embarrassed and thought that people would judge me out of AA. Um, it wasn't until I got the home group I'm in now and felt so comfortable that I, I kind of outed myself <laughs> in the meeting as not believing in God. And I remember this guy uh, who was very open about his religious beliefs. Um, he came right up to me at the, after the meeting was over, and I was like, oh, here we go. And I thought he was gonna start lecturing me, you know, about it, and you don't belong here, and what are you doing? How are you doing the steps? Are you even sober? And you know, I, this is what I was expecting. And he said, Madeline, I'm really glad you felt comfortable enough to say that in the meeting. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, it was just, it was amazing, you know? He just, he welcomed and just killed all the fear that I had. And he just, he confirmed that, you know, this really is a safe place. And, um, you know, I've been able to, fortunately since then, find a spiritual higher power that I can connect with and that I have a very deep relationship with and um, that I have a, I guess you could call it a religious practice around. And, um... You know, one of the things I love about AA probably the most is that uh, not just that we are all level here, we're all equal, but that it doesn't matter what kind of where I'm at in my spiritual journey or practice or non-practice, whatever, um, I can still be a member of AA because I'm not required to believe in God while I'm here. What I am required to do is admit that I am not it, <laughs> you know, um, I, uh, you know, I, ego, pride, all of that, that, I mean, you guys know I'm preaching in the choir, you know how damaging that can be and how that severs us from everyone else in the world, that self-centeredness, um, isolates us and then drives us back to drink, um, so as long as I can be on, you know, the same page with everybody else believing that 
I cannot stay sober alone and that I need to be here with you guys and we need each other, then I'm good. Um, that's how I was able to stay sober for four years. You know, I used uh, the belief that my sponsor had a higher power and that the group coming together created something that we all believed in. That was, that was enough for me to hold on to until it wasn't. And then I was ready to explore and find something else. And I had an awesome sponsor that helped me do that. Um, and I mean, the world just lit up around me, but anyway, that's more about me. So back to safety, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, that's part of what goes into my, my awareness of others when they're sharing in a meeting, you know? So if they share about something that I, I don't believe in or that I'm not a part of, yes, religion is an outside issue, it bugs me a little bit, but I also have learned to love and tolerate somebody else's opinion. Um, so um, I, I also had an experience when I was in Las Vegas. Uh, this, so I grew up, um, my mom was practicing one thing. They sent me to school for another. My dad was practicing another thing. So I grew up with like this literally varieties of religious experience. <laughs> and um, when I got to high school, they said, okay, you, you can pick one. And I was like, I'm out. I don't want any of them. And uh, then I started drinking. So I found my own religion <laughs> in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, then I got sober in AA eventually. And, you know, there's all these jokes. And this is just an example um, about recovering Catholics. And Catholic uh, was one of the three things that I described. And, um, you know, I thought, oh, that's cute, haha, I'd laugh every time. And then one time I was in a meeting and there was this friend I had who was clearly disturbed about something. Um, and so I went up to her after the meeting and she, I mean, she was fighting back tears. And, and I said, are you okay, what's going on? And she said, you know, it really hurts when people say jokes like that in the meeting because I'm just now rediscovering my faith in the Catholic Church and, um, you know, they are, they're criticizing it and making fun and, and, and painting it, putting it in a bad light. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that. You know what I mean? And furthermore, that is an actual outside issue. <laughs> Religion is an outside issue on purpose. And, um, you know, I just, I've never been able to forget that, nor do I want to, you know? So even now when people make jokes like that, if it's somebody in my home group that's constantly making that joke, I will pull them aside after the meeting and share that story with them. And hopefully they stop making the joke because then they can learn to respect other people's um, kind of journey and the tradition that we actually have. So, um, you know, it can actually form a wedge between helping other people. And that's the whole point is of the, to me, is the traditions is to prevent that from happening so we can continue to help other people. Um, so there's that. Um, I do believe that people are allowed to have opinions on outside issues. I really do. I think it's important um, that we choose, uh, that we, you know, and if you don't want to, that's fine too. But that, you know, outside of AA, I have things that I believe in and that I'm passionate about, whether they are religious, political, financial, it doesn't matter what my job is, it doesn't matter. Um, these are things that are important for me in my life. But the reason that we don't talk about that stuff in AA is again, because it could put a wedge or a divide between us and somebody else who could possibly need help. 
Um, and, you know, that kind of disables us from helping each other. So I just have to remember that, especially if I'm in a business meeting. You know, I don't, um, you know, I, I, I really try to focus on that fourth tradition, and that's almost the purpose that we have. I think that's the fifth tradition. Um, and then the very last thing is Zoom, virtual, you know, that whole cyber stalking thing that started. There's a lot of things that Zoom has, and any kind of, you know, video platform has come out with, um, with the person, the administrator, the controller of the meeting, whatever you want to call it, that they can actually limit the attendees' access and ability to do certain things, like not paint a screen or not record or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's just really important, oh, the host, that's the word, um, you know, that they can help kind of facilitate that environment. Um, but I also remember when I'm an attendee on that meeting, keep myself, because I can only control me. You know, I gotta, I'm trying to set an example. Um, you know, in AA at all times, I'm not being a totally different person. And if I am, then I need to look at that with my sponsor. But um, about setting that example. So when I'm on a Zoom call, I behave the same way I do in a physical meeting. I sit still, I have my camera on, and I'm paying attention. <laughs> you know, that's it. I'm not eating a Big Mac in the middle of the meeting, <laughs> so I'm not going to do that on the Zoom call either kind of thing, you know? So I just try to be, again, considerate. Um, and I guess that's not really a safety thing, but all of them are kind of connected. Um, so I have uh, a few other things, but I, I'm going to give this back to Jerry. Um, there was one little thing I wanted to read, if I can find it. Mm, maybe not. Oh, there it is. Oh, I got it. So um, this is uh, from Tradition 9 in the 12 and 12. It says, unless each AA member fo follows to the best of his ability our suggested 12 steps to recovery, he almost certainly signs his own death warrant. His drunkenness and dissolution are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from his personal disobedience to spiritual principles. The same stern threat applies to the group itself. Unless there is approximate conformity to AA's 12 traditions, the group too can deteriorate and die. So we of AA do obey spiritual principles, first because we must, and ultimately because we love the kind of life such obedience brings. Great suffering and great love are AA's disciplinarians. We need no others. So just on the topic of like AA police, there's no one person, you know, that controls what we do and don't do. A lot of this, I guess you could call AA etiquette if you wanted to, but um, really it comes down to, again, being able to help the new person. So I'm going to give it to Jay. Right. Let's see if we can get this over. Thanks. Whoa, thanks, Bree. Jerry Weaver, alcoholic. Jerry. Is that working? Yeah. Sobriety date is July the 2nd, 1989. And um, my home group is a group called There's a Solution. Same group as Madeline's. We meet in, uh, in Cary Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's a good group. Good to be here this morning. Good to be sober. Um, when when I first got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was uh, 
I guess barely street legal <laughs> um, and uh, didn't have a whole lot of uh, I don't know values or morals I'd been taught those and, and actually knew them but I didn't didn't practice them much when I was drinking but I'm when I got sober and came to my, and like joined the first group, I was thinking as Manon was talking, I, I was very grateful to have come into a group that was practicing traditions and steps and their primary purpose of trying to help out an alcoholic. And it was a very uh, safe place. It was a very uh, welcoming place you know I found a sponsor there I found fellowship there and I was just reflecting on that so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that that I, I, I came into a group that was I guess what the popular term nowadays in the A's it was a three legacy group and I, I like the the description in the, the I think it's the long form of the fifth tradition where it says a, a group should be a spiritual entity and I think that's, that's, a, that's a good term and it's kind of a, a guiding principle for a group that if you think about a spiritual entity that it should be a, a spiritual entity would be a place where uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it feels safe and there's an atmosphere of healing and an atmosphere of recovery there and it, it's not like some kind of you know, sideshow side at a circus or, uh, or some kind of, you know, depressed downer, downer group um, and I, you know I'm grateful that I that I came into that and, and I I was like so grateful to be sober and not not living the way that I was that I was living yeah I guess I was was like spiritually intoxicated because I I just kind of just thought that everything in AA was just great and everybody just did the right thing and that God was you know God was involved in everything and think now I'm brand new and I mean I know now that that was that was naive and um, not accurate and would come to you know find out pretty quickly that that Alcoholics Anonymous is I mean we're we're basically a subculture of of a bigger culture, and we're we're a microcosm of, of the world we live in. So we're made up of everything that's made up of, out in society, and everything that happens in society or in our communities or at, at work or at home happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it, it helped me to kind of understand that that we're not exempt from anything that could happen uh, out in the community or at, at the workplace or at home, and. You know, I would I would come to, to find that out. A, a few, so a few just examples of some stuff that Marilyn kind of touched on, but of where a group kind of maybe applied traditions in an un, in an unsafe manner. One of the groups that I, I belonged to, there was a, a guy that was sober, and his mom was sober. His mom had been sober in the group for a long time. He was. He was kind of in and out. But he came into the meeting one night, and he's like, he started, he came in, like, barged in. He says, I'm going to kill her. And we're like, you going to do what? 
he says, I'm going to kill her. And we're like, you're going to kill who? He says, I'm going to kill my mom. And, she, he, and he went on about, I don't know, she, she took some of his money or wouldn't let him go to the store or I don't remember what it was. But he was very, very upset. But we kind of like thought that it was an issue was he was just kind of, you know, mad and talking. Well, she comes into the, to the, to the room and he literally like started going after her. So a couple of guys restrained him and we, we held him back and we're like, we took him back into the back room and like, hey man, you're gonna have to settle down or you, you're not gonna be able to stay here. So he said he was gonna calm down. He's like, yeah, everything's fine, everything's good. And so we, we go back in, they're sitting down and he literally like tried, once he sat down, everybody was like, just sitting there, he like literally kind of came across the table at her. And so we had to like restrain him again. And by this time, people are trying to figure out what to do. And long story short, we ended up having to like restrain him. We had to take him in the back room. And the, the group is in there, the rest of the members are in the other room trying to figure out what to do. And they like took a quick group conscious and decided to, to call the police. And so, we we called the police and the police came and got him and took him away and we told him like hey you're you're welcome to come back when you want to but we're not going to let you disrupt the group like that or threaten another member and so they they took him away now that's a that's a an example of where one person is endangering the life of another. One person is disrupting the common welfare of the group. And the first tradition tells us that you know, the group is more important than the individual. The individual can't get better without the group. If you believe that, then you, you, we, you know, we can't let one person you know, disrupt that way. And the group took a group conscious second tradition and decided a course of action. We, that group actually got like, I don't know what the word, word would be. I wouldn't say ridiculed, but there were other groups at the time that like, you can't call the police on another AA member. And you know, you can't, you know, the only requirement is desire to stop drinking. You can't kick somebody out of, a, of an AA meeting. I mean, we really, we would literally were told that by other AA members in the community. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the tradition, the third tradition, people will like use the third tradition as an excuse for inappropriate behavior. You know, or they'll use the, the idea of anonymity or autonomy as, hey, you can't, you can't tell anybody else or, or you can't call the police and let these people know that this guy's an idiot. None of that is actually accurate or, or real. That the traditions don't give people, they're not a cloak for inappropriate behavior. They're not a cloak for uh, uh, abiding by laws, right? We, we have laws and rules and guidelines that we have to follow, and we're not exempt from any of those just because we're in an AA group or an AA meeting. Um, another, another example, another thing that happened, I, I used to live up out, outside of Cleveland and was a member of a group there, and there were a couple of guys that they were not they actually, this goes on everywhere, by the way, especially in bigger metro areas. There are, there are guys that, are, that will go around to AA groups that aren't AA members, 
and they'll act like they're AA members, and they're trying to find women. And we, we, we knew about this one guy and this other guy that were doing it up in, in there, and we came, one of them come, came to the group one night, and two of us just stopped him at the door, and he said, hey, man, you're welcome to come in here if you want to get sober and stay sober. Or if you want to get sober and talk about recovery, but if you're coming in here you know, to try to find some newcomer women or whatnot, you're, you're not welcome. And you know what he did? He left. Um, now, again, that's, that seems harsh. If we didn't know that guy and nobody knew the background, certainly you wouldn't go up and just confront somebody and say that. But we were very familiar with what the guy was doing, and we just the group just decided we're not going to allow that to, to happen. And, you know, we didn't. But stuff like that goes on a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, there are actually people that, like, I, I personally have had my, had my car targeted by guys I've sponsored. They'll break into your car while you're in the AA meeting. I don't know if anybody's ever had that happen, but if you haven't, you should try it one time. I'm joking. Uh, uh, it's it's just crazy. I've, I've, uh, and you got to be careful who you take into your house. I, I had a couple of guys I sponsored. I, I took them to my mom's house one time and had lunch. And the next day they broke into my mom's house and stole all of her money. Um, so you got to be careful who, who who you hang out with sometimes. Here's one example of the medication thing that uh, there was a girl in a group and. She was on she was on medication. She was known to to be schizophrenic, and some clown in the group told her it was okay to take get for her to take get off her medication, and she went absolutely just bonkers, I guess would be, or kind of lost her mind, and she actually like became obsessed with with me, and. There were some other folks, but she showed up at my work one time, like thinking I was going to leave with her. She showed up at my house one time, thinking that I was going to leave with her, and she had developed these stories in her mind. And we ended up having to get a restraining order against her. But all of it mostly because somebody tried to play doctor in the group and told her to just quit taking her medications. Um, Madeline already touched on that, that we're not, we're not doctors or psychiatrists, nor should we try to you know, tell people what, what they should do. They, um, now, I will, if I have a, somebody I'm working with in the program that's on medication and they want to talk about getting off of it, I will help them find a good doctor or a good psychiatrist. I'll even meet with their doctor and psychiatrist with them. Um, but to just make a blanket statement of telling people what to do or what not to do, that's, that's not our job. We... Um, we recently, not recently, it was actually several years ago, we had a, um, a celebrity. He was a, he was a local sports celebrity. He wasn't he was actually well-known, but he came, he came to the group a few times. He, it was kind of known that he had just gotten out of treatment. And he was uncomfortable going to, to meetings in his hometown, in the town he lived in, because of his status and people seeing him. So he came to our group hoping to find, you know, a, 
a, a place where he could just come and just be himself and not have, well, there was a guy in the group that was obsessed with him and wouldn't leave him alone and would just cornered him and, you know, would ask him questions. And I think maybe even like asked him to autograph stuff. And so the guy gave the group another shot. He came back a second time and, this was after we had talked to the, the member, our member, of, hey, leave the guy alone. And let him just be an AA member. And after the meeting, he, you know, he approached him again and said some stuff to him, and the, the guy never came back. So that's just another example of, you know, when people get here, they're, they're just AA members. If, there's, if, they, if, they're, if they're so-called celebrities, or if they are celebrities, we shouldn't treat them like that. We should just treat them like, like they're AA members. Um, another example, this is a, a personal, uh, another personal experience of where you should be careful what you say. And you, just, you never know how you may impact somebody. It was 2016, crazy election going on. And uh, we were at, a bunch of us were at dinner before the me and this guy brought up some thing about the 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 election it seemed like he was just messing around so two of us kind of jumped in on it and started saying stuff about one of the candidates we were we were literally just joking and making stuff up well this guy thought we were being serious and it scared what we were saying, I mean, it, you know, looking back on it, it probably should have never happened, but it was kind of a, I thought it was all a joke. Well, the guy quit the group, never came back. And he went to another group, I guess, where he felt more comfortable. Now, the group really didn't have anything to do with that, but some of the members of the group, me and another guy, did. But I, I realized, or I kind of, I learned a lesson there that you got to be careful with just how you talk to people and what you say, and even... Um, even sometimes joking around on real sensitive issues, right? It's in the traditions, politics and religion. You know, it warns us to be careful about that. Um, so I, I, I try not to, if, I, if I'm talking to somebody about politics or religion, I, I try to keep that out of Alcoholics Anonymous and I try to know who I'm talking to before I do that, even if I am joking. Um, what time is that thing? We're probably at? I'm close to being out of time. The... So, so what can, there's things that groups can do. Um, so like at our group, it, it used to be a little more formal, I think, but now there are, there are just members there that kind of watch for stuff. So if somebody's like praying on a newcomer or trying to get to somebody or if they're doing something dishonest, there are, we've got enough members now that somebody's going to talk to that person, right? You, 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 we're not going to allow inappropriate behavior to, to continue or to go on. You know, as I said before, the traditions don't give people a license to do what they want to do. They're not a, you know, we still need to abide by guidelines and rules and laws and just common decency and courtesy to people. Yeah, are you trying to point something out to no, me? No, I'm making a note. For You're me. making notes? For me. For you? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, the other thing I would say is that unsafe stuff in alcoholics' Anonymous, it's nothing new. It's funny, you can go back to, like, uh, 
old articles in the grapevine, like from the late 40s and in the 50s, and they're talking about, you know, uh, people preying on new people, or uh, they're talking about, you know, people getting into fights and meetings. Um, I heard a guy give a talk one time who claims that he tried to get in a fight with Bill Wilson because Bill Wilson was messing with his wife. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but he, there, there's a talk about a, a guy in Florida that, that said that. Um, so, it's, it's funny, isn't it? What's that? It's probably true. It's probably true. <laughs> Who knows? Um, there's a safety card, right? The, um, we've got the safety card right here. I know that some groups read the safety card. I, w- I will say this, I, the, the safety card is good. Um, you, could, you could argue whether it should be read or not read at meetings. I, I won't go into that, but I, I would say this, that, that just reading the safety card is not enough. And I'd be careful to, I mean, about 99% of the members in AA are doing the right thing. It's a very small percentage of people that are actually violating our traditions and our and guidelines and that are doing stuff like that. I'd be careful to to not paint a broad brush and just accuse everybody of being unsafe when it's that's really not the case. But a lot of groups think they're doing their job just by reading the safety card. And that's that's not it. It is okay for people to to talk to other members about stuff that they're doing or they're not doing. It is okay to, to not allow that, that behavior to go on in the group. And it's really the group's responsibility, I think, to, to watch for that and to have you know, uh, people that are willing to have uncomfortable conversations with folks. Um, there should be people, men and women, that are designated to have those conversations uh, in the group. And if Madeline made this comment years ago, one of these we did, and it, it, it's very accurate that if a group is following the traditions and a group is, is trying to be a three-legacy group and they're focused on, if their mission is really to focus on helping the alcoholic, then that type of behavior, it, won't, it can't live there. So if people are coming to a group that's following all the traditions, they're, just, they're almost automatically just pushed out. You almost don't even have to do anything. They're unattractive. Yeah, it's it, right. It's just unattractive, and it just it, it, it doesn't it doesn't live there. So that's really you know the, the, the best thing groups can do is to to have honest discussions, open discussions about stuff like this, and to try to follow the traditions. So I think we're right on the time. Thank I you. Couple, I got a couple more tiny things. Sorry, well, I always well, have afterthoughts. Sorry, good. I got just a couple things. You can't see she's being unsafe. She's trying to take control. <laughs> Um, I did want to mention that if a group does a regular inventory once every couple years, a lot of these issues that people are afraid to talk about, they, they come out in a group inventory. So if you're doing that, those issues will get flushed out. Um, so if your group has, is experiencing a problem, do an inventory. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll come up. Um, another thing is the, a lot of the predatory sexual behavior. I know it's very stereotypical to mention that men prey on women, but that is not where it stops. Women also prey on men. Women prey on other women. And men also prey on other men. So, you know, we don't want to think, oh, it's just one thing. 
and not another. You know, I can't shut my eyes to it and think that it's not happening or somebody is just being really flirtatious. They could actually be crossing the line with somebody that we're not aware of. And if that person complains, you know, we can dismiss that or shut it down or make a little joke when in fact they may think that they are not, they can't be safe in AA because of that, you know? So um, we had a girl come to our meeting one time who is a legit underwear model and she looked like one. And it was very hard. She was extremely attractive. And it was very hard for her to have a conversation without getting approached, you know. And um, we tried to kind of shelter her from that. But um, she, did, she didn't last long in the group anyway. She moved. And I think she went back out. But it was just one of those examples, you know, um, where, you know, it's just I, I just don't think about that until it happens kind of thing. Um, and then there's another tiny thing, uh, and I mentioned this in the car on the way up here. I, I get real hot about Tradition 10 sometimes when it comes to um, drugs and drug addicts. Um, to me, uh, drug addicts are our sisters and brothers. We run with them. We ran with them when we were drinking, and they are here, and we are them, some of us, you know? And um, there's a... a where I came from, it's a very strong line between drug addiction and alcoholism. And since then, I've seen a lot of gray in the middle and especially going to Las Vegas, lots, lots of drugs. And, um, you know, I've learned that in talking to people here, um, it's really, really important that when I am sharing in a meeting or I'm talking about our primary purpose, that I am not ostracizing drug addicts. I'm not making them feel unwelcome that um, our primary purpose here is to pass this message along to the person who wants it, whether they are new or old, it doesn't matter, that they are not forbidden to mention the word drugs. You know, we have lots of cute little phrases around the drug use, um, but when people try to omit that completely from their story out of quote-unquote respect for AA, their story gets weird and confusing. You know, like they have tons of, of, of um, charges in court and maybe a lot of jail time or prison time, but they never once get, men, you know, mentioned DUI or, 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 you know, drunk driving charge or anything because it's usually drug charges, you know. So from a newcomer perspective, it's confusing. And I just have to remember that to keep it clean and easy. Drugs are a very small part of my story. I don't consider myself a drug addict because I did them and didn't like them, so I didn't do them anymore, you know? Um, but, um, so that's not a problem for me when I'm sharing, but the one day I actually did cocaine, that's what it was, you know? It was drugs, <laughs> and it wasn't like powdered alcohol. And some people, you know, they, they you know, they, they use that to kind of keep everything in the same in the same category, and I get that. I'm not saying that, you know, those things, you shouldn't say that either, but just try to remember from a newcomer perspective, it can be really confusing to dance around that sometimes. Just call it for what it is, and if I have a lot of drugs in my story, that's not going to be the most of what I share in an AA meeting. I'll share about the drinking, you know, but I'm not going to pretend like the drugs didn't happen, and I'm not going to treat people who do talk about drugs any different or criticize them for mentioning it, you know? It's not like this forbidden word. So I just want to put that out there because I feel like those people are um, kind of shunned sometimes and we definitely should not be doing that. So, okay, now I'm done. Thanks. <laughs>
along the same lines of what Jerry already shared. You know, we get outside help when it's when it's needed. Right? Yeah, yeah. Let's go over. Um, yeah, I've sponsored lots of folks that were suicidal. Um, it depends on the situation. I, sometimes you call 911. Um, sometimes you, you may have to take them directly to the to a, a hospital or a, an emergency room yourself I've done that I've taken folks to uh, mental health centers I would I um, I'm careful to not just disregard it or blow it off if, if I get a call that somebody is suicidal um, so I think it's it's something that that should be dealt with or uh, you You'd address it just like you would if one of your family members called and said they were suicidal. They're having a mental health crisis. They need to get mental health professional help. <laughs> you know, that's it. The importance of an open versus closed meeting, or just what does it mean, and why do we have it, and what do we do if it's a closed meeting, and people who are drunks want to participate? Got a lot of experience with that. So, um, I, I was a member of a group that, in the, this would have been in the in the late eighties, early nineties. It's actually not as big of an issue today as it was then. There were a lot of crack addicts coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, it was just a huge issue in AA with you know, what they called pure drug addicts coming into to AA. 
And I was a member of a group where um, if it was a closed meeting and someone introduced themselves as an addict, they were would immediately like be escorted. kind of like escorted out or uh, somebody would, you know, would make some inappropriate comment to them. Or if they were allowed to just sit there, then when it came up to the discussion and, and they tried to, to talk, they would immediately be shut down. The, I, I don't think any of that was, 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 was right. Um, it, it's just, it is a real issue. I think the best way to handle that nowadays would be, or today would be, if you were at a closed meeting and somebody spoke up, Depending on the context of it or how it's done, if, if you've got a good chairperson, the chairperson could kind of, you know, say, hey, thanks for, you know, we're really glad that you're here. Our, our closed meetings are just for alcoholics to, to share. We'd be happy to talk to you after the meeting. That'd be one way to handle it. Um, another way would be to let them go on and stop and then for some people to talk to them after the meeting. I don't think it's, it, it would be right to just completely shut them down or ask them to leave in front of everybody. I used to think that, but it's, it's not right. Just my, that's just a, a kind of a, it's a personal opinion, but it's also based out of experience. I mean, what's the big, what's the big deal? I mean, who's it gonna hurt if somebody, I mean, it's not the end of the world. Um, so I think the, right, the best way to handle that would be after the meeting with a couple of the members. Now I, th now, I, now, I will say this. I do know people that, like, a, they purpose, they'll come to a meeting and do that. They're not alcoholic, and then they'll come back to a second meeting and try to do it. I think if they come back to the second meeting and try to do it, then it's a different issue. Uh, somebody should probably ask them to not participate to probably leave before the meeting starts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but... There was a group um, in California that I was a member at um, that actually had a commitment in the group uh, for someone if someone introduced themselves as not an alcoholic, um, that they had a list of other meetings in the area that they would give them a ride. Like, so they would, we would take them out of the meet. We would say, oh, we can give you a ride to the NA meeting or to the whatever else meeting or Al-Anon or anything. So it was actually their job in the group to drive them. So we don't just kick them out, but we say, okay, we'll take you to where you need, you can get help. Seems a little extreme, but the, you know, the, the spirit of, of helping people is there. So that's up to the group to decide what they want to do. Just an option. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that today, but <laughs> yeah. There's a race. All right. Nice. Here we go. <laughs> um, thank you for coming. Because when I was earlier, I identified more of the death side of my alcoholism, um, and it definitely, like, I found a solution in AA, and I'm forever grateful for that. Um, so my question is, is it ever okay to completely ban somebody from a meeting? And then also, like, if you were to ask somebody to leave um, and they didn't respect that, what steps would you take? It depends on what they're doing, uh, first of all. Um, if they're breaking actual laws, then you, we can call the police. 
Um, we had one guy at a group, um, it was at an Alano club and they had a, a safe in the front of the room and that's where everybody dropped their seven tradition envelopes and then the Alano club would do what they would do with it. Um, and this guy would not just start a meeting, but I eventually heard that other people were doing it too, or they were watching him do it too. He would just sit at the Alano Club all day and offer to bring the envelope to the safe. <laughs> and it would not make it to the safe. He would physically walk around the room but, and walk over to the safe, but it would already be in his backpack by then. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the Alano Club, the way we caught it, I think somebody watched him and saw it. Um, but, you know, nobody wants to believe that somebody's actually going to do that. The Alano Club started saying, hey, we were missing a few of your envelopes. And we were like, oh, he was there. And then we started watching him. We pulled him aside after I think two or three people witnessed him doing it on the same day. We pulled him aside privately and said, hey, you know, we've seen you do this. And, you know, um, you know, we're, we're just going to ask that. You, if, you, if possible, you return the money, and um, you know if you don't have it anymore, that you're welcome to come and be at this meeting, but you cannot do that here. You know that's that's not what we're about. That's that money is a different purpose. Um, you know, if you need help, we can try to find you help for what you need the money for, whether it's somewhere to live or some food or a shelter or something like that. Um, but, you know, so we didn't just like abandon him, but we made it clear that if you're going to do that, you cannot come to this meeting if that's why you're here is to collect our basket. Um, but you are more than welcome to come back if you, if you stop behaving that way. And that doesn't just go with this example. That's a good, that's like an, an appropriate discussion to have with all sorts of behaviors that are happening. You can't come if you're doing that but you're more than welcome to come back when you stop, kind of thing. So, do you have something you want to add? Let's alcoholic. I've had a couple of sponsees who have found it hard to identify with the big book because of some of the pronouns and some of the patriarchal language. Um, so I've, I've worked with them individually, like when we do our step work, but both of them said it was hard in their first meeting before they got to talk to me, like a, an actual human, when they were just listening, that it was hard for them to sit there and identify and feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, like, one of them read, like, read one of the readings and changed all the pronouns and everybody got upset. Um, do you have any, like, I, you know, I, again, that you did exactly the right thing. It's, it, it comes down to, well, I shouldn't say sponsorship exclusively. Um, you know, if somebody's having a hard time or they do decide to change all that stuff, that's definitely when I would pull them aside after and have a real honest conversation with them. And, um, you know, talk to them about, <laughs> it always seems like it goes one way, but it goes both about tolerance and love, you know. Um, this fellowship has its own history, and that's changing even as we speak. And um, some people think that's a good thing, and some people think that's a bad thing. You know, everybody's going to have their own opinions about that. The plain language book that's being written right now, 
I, I know people who are like, oh my God, they're freaking out because they think that it's not AA anymore, which is not true, right? But then there are other people that are thinking, oh, it's about time, this is long overdue. So, you know, we're all AA members. We're all hopefully here to try and be sober and help other people be sober. And that's what I try to just keep in my mind. And that um, the love and tolerance that uh, I want them to have for me that I try to have for them as well. That's the kind of conversation. And I might get more specific depending on what exactly happened and who I'm talking to. And I try to talk to them about their background so I, just so I can kind of have an understanding of where they're coming from. Um, but that kind of open-mindedness is something that I definitely had to learn and almost always the hard way um, after I got here, after I got sober. And, you know, that inventory, that first inventory that we do usually will pull out a lot of those issues and you know when I have I don't know anything about your sponsee but when I know that when I have an issue with something it's really something that's going on in here and so if I have a reaction and do an inventory then um usually I don't have a problem with the other people anymore right so uh I have a little note here that I didn't read before I put um you know, if I'm unable to go somewhere or do something or, I guess, understand something, I have to remember that whether it's um, a time or a spiritual or a mental, it's just kind of a sacrifice that we make to, of ourselves to try and be here together and achieve that common goal that we have of passing this message of sobriety onto people, you know? So um, I, I try to just kind of equalize it. You know, it's really interesting. If you read all these pamphlets we have that AA has put out about, you know, the older member, the African-American member, the gay and lesbian member, the, you know, blind member, all this, all, this, all of that, the, all those pamphlets start out with, I thought, you know, I'm different because, but they all end up the same. We're all AA. We're all just sober members of AA, you know? And that doesn't mean, again, I think it's important to have your own um, opinions and experiences and identities in life, but in AA, and that's specifically what we're talking about, it's about keeping it uh, level for everyone here so we can help each other. And it's not about, you know, sometimes drawing on those differences can help one another, sure, because there's women's meetings and um, there's gay and lesbian meetings and there's... Um, I guess men's meetings, there's all sorts of, I guess, specialty meetings is what you call it. But um, when it comes down to it, you know, on a, on a, I guess on a safety level, it's important that those things still exist, agnostic meetings, things like that. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's that one alcoholic helping another. And if I let those things get in the way of me helping another person or them helping me, like if I have a prejudice against somebody, um, I... I had a boss one time who uh, I was raised on one side of the political spectrum and I had a boss one time who I had no idea was on the other side of the political spectrum and I had gotten to know her and had so much respect and admi ad admiration for her and her personality and the way that she just behaved. Um, and one day we were driving out of the parking lot and I saw a bumper sticker on her car and I went, oh my God, I was like, what? It blew my mind for two reasons. One, that somebody who I believe wasn't capable of acting a certain way was acting a 
a, a different way than I expected. Um, that it just, I, oh my God, my stereotype of them is completely wrong. Uh, so I was grateful to know that there was, that I was wrong on that side, but it also called attention to the stereotype that I actually had. I wasn't even, I didn't even realize I was holding on to that so tightly just because I, that's the way I was raised. I didn't know any better, you know? So I kind of try, use that example um, in AA that, you know, when somebody talks about a certain personal affiliation with something, I try not to let it get in the way of hearing the message that they have to share, you know? And on that note, from the podium, I also don't share specific, um, you know, uh, I guess you could say companies that I've worked for, schools that I've attended or anything like that. I try to, or even specific rehabs that I've been to, like, are, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to like discolor or give an affiliation or an association with any of that stuff because that might get in the way of somebody hearing the message. Does that make sense? Yeah, the only thing I would add is I, I, I try to get people to, to focus more on taking spiritual actions and, and not focus on words and terms. I know people get caught up on that, but if, if they'll take the actions of writing inventory and sharing that with somebody, they, they can do that regardless of what words are in our, our, our literature. Um, so, and, you know, they'll eventually come to their own their own experience and their own belief. Um, if Yeah. 
my sponsor had to tell me when I first got when I first got sober. Yeah. My sponsor, when I first got sober, she um, she would listen to me talk, and she said, "Madeline, you are not in the bar anymore." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, like I didn't even realize how bad my language was, or how foul, or you know, just disrespectful I was being." She had to point that out to me. Um, one of the things that we do too a lot in our group is corrections, um, and so going into correctional facilities. You know, it's real tempting to, I guess, speak the language that's in there, you know, and act all tough and, and curse a lot. And the thing is, is we um, are not offering anything different if we do that. We're not modeling any kind of change in behavior. We're not offering really a whole lot of hope um, that, that um, you know, we can be better. A lot of the remorse, resentment, guilt that I had on my inventory is that, um, you know, I wasn't able to control my own behavior and I hurt people. Um, and so if, if that's what I'm doing when I'm carrying the message, then a lot of that, that, I don't know, I guess the shiny part of the hope is lost for me. (laughs) I guess that's kind of a silly way to say it, but, um, you know, I try to be better, uh, not just for others, but for myself as well. sober a year to, before I could sponsor anybody. Um, so, I, I mean, I was told the first day that I was 12-step by a guy, and I wasn't even sober. He told me that when I, if I got better, my job would be to try to help somebody else. As a matter of fact, he hoped that that's what I would do. And so, I mean, I, 
I started sponsoring people. I was probably 90 days, three months sober when I started helping people. Um, everything we like about Alcoholics Anonymous is because of the traditions. Everything we don't like about Alcoholics Anonymous is because of the traditions. So, you know, unfortunately, there are no AA police. We don't have any hierarchy. And there, you know, there is nobody, no bureaucracy in charge. And we do have autonomy. So Alcoholics Anonymous in and of itself has no opinion on any of that stuff, right? If you follow the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it basically says to immediately try to start helping people. Uh, but unfortunately, members and groups do have, you know, ideas and different things. And, you know, if a group wants to say that, they can. Um, what, what I always tell people, so there are groups that have, you know, kind of traditions where you got to work a step a year or you can have to be sober a year before you can help somebody. I've been to groups where... Uh, they don't want guys, you know, have facial hair. Guys have to wear coats and ties, and you know, females have to dress up. I'm not making this up. Um, and you know, there are people that there are groups where they allow kind of anything goes type behavior. I always tell people that if go to a group that doesn't do that. I mean, it's. You know, you don't need to, to get that group to change for you. Go for, there are groups that are following traditions. There are groups that, that are spiritual entities. There are groups that are welcoming to all. Just go find one of those groups. They, they actually do exist. And, you know, those other groups will eventually die or something will happen to them if they're not long-term, if they're not following traditions. Um, yeah, so I mean, I sometimes I wish there were a police and that I was in charge of it, and we could go out and <laughs> and, uh, and get them, but yeah, we we can't. Um, but so I don't know if that answered your question or not. But it's 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 not anything that I would put put on there. Anything else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's so true for me. I mean, it's like, you know, I just used to wait for like the 
you know, someone to misquote the big book. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> traditionally, like, oh, I'm, I'm sniper sheriff or whatever. You know, I would say, don't do that. You know, I'm not anyone. But my more of the question is, and we, it's, I've got emails, this has happened in other parts of, parts of the state, this happened here group, you know, like when one person does something, you know, you can, the group can usually absorb it. There's been some instances where some big sober living kind of places, halfway houses, treatment centers, whatever they are, will bring literally like 40 people to a meeting. Yeah. And it, I mean, even if it's a big meeting, it's hard to absorb. And certainly there have been some, um, you know, solutions or attempted solutions or things about us. Wondering, do you guys have any experience, or if so, what is that experience? But when it, you know, becomes that big, there's like 40 people, sometimes more than the group itself. But even if it's an 80-person meeting, for adding 40 to it is it's hard to absorb. So that's my question. Yeah. Um... I do have experience with it. I, it's 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 been a kind of a, an ongoing. I don't know if it's an issue in Alcoholics Anonymous for years. It happened in Raleigh when they opened up a, a homeless shelter that had a treatment center attached to it, and uh, you know overnight they were basically dumping fifty to seventy people on a group. Um, and it's an issue for a group. We would even hold workshops expecting 40 people to come and we'd have food for 40 people and then they would bring in their vans and drop 70 people off and there, there was no food for the people that actually came for the... So anyway, um, the, I, there's a few things that, that we've experienced at our group since we've moved locations a little bit that now we're getting vans from different sober living houses I mean, members need to be prepared for it. They, they should talk to people before the meeting and find out what's going on with them and kind of explain a little bit about what's going on with the group and what the group does and doesn't do. Those, 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 those conversations can just happen in general conversation bef before the meeting if group members are engaging those folks and they're not off in their little cliques or whatever. So I think it's part of the group's responsibility to, to talk to those folks. Um, I can tell you this, that announcements don't work. They, they make announcements at, at before or after the meeting about stuff, that we only do this. Those, it's just like the safety card. It sounds good and it feels good. And it's, it just, all that does is the group can say, hey, we did something, but you really didn't do anything. If nobody listens to those things. As a matter of fact, most of us are so defiant, we're going to do the opposite of what the card says. Because that's just how we are. So, so that's one thing you can do. The other thing that, that I think is important is that somebody from the group or from, it could be the intergroup or the district, should go talk to that facility. Is that it's our responsibility that if, if it's truly an issue where, let's say you're, they're truly bringing folks that maybe that aren't alcoholic or that don't know or that, that, that we should go talk to the the people running those facilities and explain the situation to them and see if they could maybe send some over here and send some over there or if they could explain to them what AA etiquette is. 
Um, we used to do that at the one facility that was dumping loads of people off. We would actually do an AA etiquette kind of uh, class, if you will, or workshop at the facility for the new members or the clients there to kind of let them know what it is and what it isn't. Um, other than that, sometimes you just have to deal with it. I mean, you know, I, it, but it is, a, it is an ongoing kind of dilemma with, with some groups. I don't know if you got anything to add to that, but, but talking to the, the people at the facility is actually something that, that it's kind of our responsibility to do that, let them know what it is and isn't. Madeline, thank you for uh, pointing out that the, the sexual predatory stuff is not just one site. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's going to be a price to pay for me now because I've got a young lady in the group who's going to be intense stepping my facial expressions, and when I roll my eyes, she's going to call me out on it, so I'm stuck with that. You're in trouble. Jerry, thank you for, uh, for sharing some of your experience when it came to being the object of somebody's obsession. I've, uh, I've been in some shoes similar to that before and tried to help some others in the group through it. Can either of y'all speak to a struggle between the traditions and our civic responsibilities when it comes to being called into court? Are, are you so? Are you talking specifically like about anonymity or or anonymity third tradition, twelfth uh, uh, step, twelfth tradition? Yeah. General comment that. Um, that the, the, the traditions, none of the traditions, I guess, would override local and state federal law. So, I mean, if, if, if I, I mean, I've actually been in the court a few times. Um, I, I follow the laws. I follow the advice of an attorney, or I'd follow the advice of the DA, depending on what the situation is. I, um, the funny thing about anonymity is it's a whole nother conversation Anonymity was designed to protect Alcoholics Anonymous from AA members. It's not designed to protect out. I mean, it, it was never designed to, you know, don't tell anybody that he was here and I won't tell anybody that she was here. That's not anonymity. That's just basic common sense. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I, I, follow, I follow the laws as a citizen. Yeah. Thank you very much. I love that. When... Um I kind of mentioned when, you know, when we take meetings into correctional facilities that we try to be a better example, but they have a lot of very strict and very, very clear rules that we have to follow when we go in there. One of them is we are not allowed to sponsor the inmates. So um, trying to work through how to get, how to talk about the steps and if they're there for a long time, um, how they can work the steps with each other um, and how we can potentially work with the facility to maybe listen to an inventory. We're currently going through that right now with our um, detention center in Wake County. Um, we, you know, we don't come to them saying, this is what we need. We come to them saying, how can we help you? You know, it's a much better and much different approach. And they may not be completely on board with what we do in AA. That's okay. You know, we, um, we do what we can. And then I honestly believe that God works out the rest. So. 
my experience um, being an AA and my experience being 13 steps. Um, are there any groups that have like a playbook that they run by successfully for protecting the newcomers, especially very young women? Um, just from my experience, I don't have experience with anything else, so I'm speaking just from, and I do believe that a lot, everybody needs to be protected when they're new, but specifically for um, women that are coming out of the abuse um, are there any groups that have just written down some of their tools or their um, their their guidelines that they use successfully? And if there are, is there any way for us to get some of them? Uh, well, there's one group I knew of in Vegas that did, and I did not like that group because <laughs> they had a million rules, and it was impossible for I think um, me to be a home group member there because I could never remember which rules to follow and which ones to do. Um, I'm sure there are groups that do that, uh, but it kind of goes to what I was saying before: is um, you know we, as a home group member. Hmm, I pay attention to the new women that walk in the room, the new men that walk in the room, and I, I don't need to be that person who runs up and greets them, but I keep an eye on them. And if, you know, I'll introduce myself if, if, it's, a, if it's a good time to do that, but um, if I notice that they're being approached by people who are interested in anything other than trying to help them get sober, then... I will step in and have a conversation. You know, like I said, sometimes it might be with the person who is being approached. Sometimes it may be with the person who's doing the approaching. But just like Jerry said, there's a few people in each group that um, I guess you could say are kind of like the elder statesmen sort of leaders in the group um, that have been sober for a while and been through a lot of this that can guide the group members on how to kind of react or proactively approach that situation. Um, in terms of written down guidelines, again, I've only seen one group do it and they had guidelines about everything. So it wasn't just that one thing. And that to me was personally just too much. So, um, but it was a big group, so it worked for a lot of people, you know? So I'm sure there are groups out there probably around here that do it. I just don't know personally of any myself. Yeah. I mean, you know, each group's, each, well, yeah, each group's autonomy allows you to do that kind of thing. So if, you know, there's a group you're a part of that doesn't have it and you want to be a group that does have it and start a group, right? You can start, you can put whatever you want in there. Um, that's the freedom of AA. <laughs> um, you know, the, the one time I've seen a group kind of uh, go off of, um, using the steps or traditions in the way that are presented in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, um, the local reaction to that was to take them out of the meeting schedule, you know, because they weren't reading the steps as they're written in the book. Um, so that's the only other thing I can think of is if, you know, a group has too many rules or whatever, that's the only consequence that AA itself can offer is that they take them out of the meeting schedule. But if they um, don't, then, I mean, then that's fine too. I think more of like, um, they keep, uh, like they have like a card with like six women's phone numbers on them that they give to a, a young newcomer that oh. they hand off to, or if they're, they're just like I mean, a, a something 
that they do that, you know, yeah. these are people that can drive. Um, sure. These, these, these people, they're, they're people in the group that can drive. Yeah. Or just kind of, just things like that. I'm not talking like, you know, making rules outside of the conditions. Mm -hmm. I'm talking like, I guess more of the marketing or PR low key that says, you know, this is just going to make it easier for you to connect with people that are safe, that we know are, are generally safe. I mean, I would say just go up to that woman and get those people whose phone numbers they are, go up and actually talk to her. And it doesn't have to be formal at all. You know, that's just a matter of introducing yeah. yourselves and giving your phone number to them and saying, you know, like, especially if you know they come from a really abused situation, say, we are safe people, stick with us. And that's it. You know, it doesn't, yeah. So I actually just read something out of Language of the Heart um, about Bill Wilson uh, and him helping a newcomer. I really think it's either tradition eight or nine. Um, but the little article that he wrote for Grapevine way, way back in 1948 and um, how he gave this, um, yeah, maybe it wasn't 12 and 12. There's so much literature. Um, but uh, how he gave, it was the 12 and 12, how he gave an example about... Um, this guy, this, this chronic slipper, I guess he called it, um, came into the office. You know, Bill Wilson was complaining about them, the way they were spending money, and this guy came in the office, and, and, and his issue with the fellowship is they weren't donating enough to support the office. This guy comes in, and he gives this guy a $5 bill, which was a lot of money back then. And then he takes this guy to his meeting that night. The Southern Tradition Basket comes around, and he puts a dime in there, you know? And he was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm complaining that the groups aren't donating and I'm giving a dime to the basket to help the fellowship, but I'm giving this guy five bucks. And he realized that it was a matter of ego and pride, that of, of where he was getting sort of credit or recognition from, you know? And um, the, the, that rang a bell for me when what you were saying because when I um, make decisions and take action financially, I try to not let it be somehow connected to ego, pride, or emotion. Um, because then I can end up putting my own financial security in jeopardy, but I'm helping this other person out. You know what I mean? Like, I have also learned that I need to take care of myself so that I can help others, right? So if I'm helping them to the point where 
I'm not able to help them anymore, then I got to look at that kind of thing. So I don't know if that answers the question. One thing that, um, it may not be what you were asking, but I have been on the, the one end of that where you got these people that like hawk the seventh tradition basket. So they'll watch who's putting money in it. And have even like personally have been like embarrassed by people when the basket comes around and I don't put any money in it. And then, you know, they'll like get you, they'll make a comment to you or they'll act literally come up to you after the meeting and, you know, why aren't you being self-supporting? And I think that's completely just inappropriate, personally. Um, and, um, I mean, I, it's actually scary sometimes to me. Um, the, so as far as the seven tradition basket is concerned, I mean, I, I deal with that personally through sponsorship. So, and a lot of what we're talking about is, you know, is really kind of the, the best way to, to deal with a lot of it is through, is through sponsorship and trying to, you know, explain to people what traditions are and what they aren't. Um, but I, I try to, to never, like, make somebody feel uncomfortable about thinking they got to put money in that basket or, you know, try to embarrass somebody in front of, in front of somebody else. Now, if somebody that I sponsor... If they ask me about the seven tradition, I'll explain to them and I'll explain the importance of us trying to be uh, self-supporting, but I, I never like require anybody to do it. Um, so I don't, that's kind of part of that. Thanks. The last talk we gave, this came up and got to be kind of a hot topic. Um, I, uh, I, I can't remember what I said initially, but I had to kind of re-explain. Um, if I see somebody not putting money in the basket, but I know that they have money to give, meaning they are not living in a homeless shelter, they have a job, um, I, and they're a regular member, I might approach them privately and ask, just out of curiosity, why they're not putting money in the basket. And I've been told, oh, it's just for chips and cookies. And I'm like, no, that's not accurate, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, that, that's what they, that they asked somebody when they first got there, and that's what they were told. And that's what they believed the entire time. They didn't realize that we were spending it on rent, <laughs> on literature, also on chips and cookies, but also coffee, <laughs> you know? Like, we were using it for things that we needed um, in order to have the meeting there. And... Um, not everybody knows those things, which is also why we have full transparency with our budget um, at our business meeting. Our treasurer will email out a copy of our budget detailed um, every month. So if somebody has questions, they can just ask, you know. So, but a lot of these things too are, uh, a lot of these issues that we've been talking about are from people who don't have home groups, you yep. know. They just go to meetings. Um, and so if they're attendees in meetings, um, we can't assume that they are part of a group or that they know better. You know, there's a lot of people that just float for years. Um, and those are also a lot of people that perpetuate this kind of behavior yeah. that we've been talking yeah. about. Um, in our business meeting, I make it a point, and the regular home group members are so <laughs> done with me saying this, but I go through a lot of really basic roles that the church have given us, and I make it a point to say, as home group members, it's our job to share this with people who are not home group members here, because they don't know, you know? And um, 
we need to lead by example. And a lot of these opinions are just not popular at all. This, this stuff that we're talking about, they're not fun. They're not attractive. They're usually um, come out of an uncomfortable situation that's been created and then have to confront it or address it is even more uncomfortable. But if we don't, that's when really unsafe things actually happen, you know? So we've got to address these things. Um, so I'm glad that you guys asked us to come. Um, is there anybody else has any other questions, comments? Okay. Uh, we're about out of time, but I want to read this one part out of the book. I love it. This is like, it just encapsulates everything we've been talking about. Um, it's on page 19. It's from There's a Solution. It says, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That right there is like, I love that part. So that, that kind of is, I think, a really nice way to wrap up um, what we've been talking about. So.